Welcome back to another episode of the Max Term Podcast. Kyle Stitch here alongside James Finch. And today we are going to take you through our projection model recap. Kind of how we fared, some maybe lessons we learned, where we continue to improve, and also just kind of talk about the overall free agency class as it relates to our model Think I think this year was definitely a unique year, and I think we'll get into that a little bit more as we as we get through this episode. Um, so if you have any questions about our model, you want to check out these projections. They're still publicly available, free for anyone at AFP Analytics on Twitter or AFPanalytics.com. You can find the links to them. Currently, they just live in a Google Drive, so anyone's able to access them, view them. Uh, you're still welcome to use them. Is uh, just give us a shout out at AFP Analytics is much appreciated there. Um, and then our personal accounts can also be found at the at AFP Analytics uh, hat, uh, Twitter handle or X, I should say, formerly known as Twitter, seems to be the proper way to put it nowadays. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to uh, reach out to us. I've I've had a couple conversations with people listening to this podcast and it's always enjoyable to uh hear hear from you and uh hopefully for those people who have reached out i've provided some uh, good insight as well um any ads or anything associated with this you might hear associated with this episode are not necessarily products that james or i are endorsing and um with that let's get into our projection Model. So we've been doing these a little bit of background for about five years. We have an initial episode. Our very first episode of this podcast is on how we came up with our projection model, kind of where it sits, the air and stuff. So this episode is really going to be the recap of this year's free agent class. And it really was a unique one. Yeah, I think the... There, there's a few reasons why it was unique, but the, I think, big shock of this year was there seemed to be some contracts that were kind of all over the place. Uh, certain ones that didn't really make sense, but then we could kind of make a little bit of sense out of the situation. Um, but just kind of a, a little bit larger of variance than we would usually expect. Yeah, I think this. I think this is before we kind of get into some hard numbers with with where our air and stuff actually fell. I think this year was unique. It was unique in a couple ways. One, uh, the cap hasn't risen really for years now, so teams are still navigating. Like they, if they signed long term contracts three, four years ago, they were expecting those contracts to not be eating up nearly the same percentage of the cap. And they still are just because of COVID and kind of how the economics worked out and kind of related to that is next year. It's pretty well speculated that the cap is going up three, four, maybe even $5 million per team. So teams, There were definitely some teams that uh, were trying to use that to their advantage and some teams that maybe were kind of trying to be a little more judicious with their spending this year to to save room for next year. So right before free agency started, I kind of did a quick calculation on kind of the money we had projected versus how much cap was actually available. 
And I got those numbers. Quick shout out, catfriendly.com, invaluable resource. That's where we pull all our contract data from. So I, I went through each of the teams based on what they have as the um, available cap space. And basically, our projected numbers were were higher than what was available. So we knew that we were going, we had to be off because you can't, there's, you can't magically make more cap space across the entire league. So sure, one team can make more cap space, but the entire league, outside of some level of buyouts, that reduces it a little bit, but that's very marginal. Cap space doesn't just appear out of nowhere. So we knew we were going to be off because we just couldn't, there just isn't, wasn't enough money to go around. So we knew a squeeze was going to be in. So let's get into some of the numbers, kind of where our air was, talk through what that means. Yeah, so uh, each year we've been doing this so far, we try to uh, keep it very transparent, and we actually have our uh, air within the same document as all of the contracts, and it is updating live as we update the actual contracts. Um, with that said, so our air is using um, our projected cap hit. So this year we um, are using the number we predicted against the 83 and a half million cap. And so as of today, we sit with a mean absolute air cap hit of $363,280.02. Um, so that number it includes the recent signings of Evan Bouchard with Edmonton and uh, Alexi Lafreniere with the Rangers, um, and then two players that we're still kind of we're, we're really looking to see what they end up signing for. Um, Trevor Zegers is the big one. Uh, he's an RFA with Anaheim and still looking for a new deal. And then there's one last UFA we're kind of keeping an eye on, and that's uh, Tomas Tatar. Um, but uh, even with those signings coming in, we don't expect to be super far off where our air is really going to change too much. And even if at this point there's enough contracts that have been signed that, uh, again, unless they're Tatar could be interesting given that he's the fact he's still without a team might might mean that he takes a lower contract. So that could be – maybe there's some other behind-the-scenes situation as well. Zegris, unless he does something that like outrageous, chances are he's not going to move our projection air very much. I had pulled data a couple weeks ago that were excluding a few guys, Bouchard and Lafreniere being two of them. And at that point, it was a little bit better, like 362800 or around there. So adding two more contracts that we were about $300,000, $400,000 off moved, moved our air $1,000. Like, we're pretty comfortable in saying our air this year is, is rate is in the low $360,000 range, again, including minimum. So Real quickly, if you're listening to this and wondering what mean absolute air means, it is how we calculate our air is we take every contract that has been signed, add up the total cap hits for all those contracts, and divide it by the number of contracts signed. And we do that for length, and we do that for, as I said, cap hit. So 
we we kind of use two numbers here, and that's and that's kind of how we arrive at our error. Also related to that, it's important to know we do include, and I think we've probably said this already a couple times, we do include minimums. So probably the other website that a lot of people are using uh, that have set a really high bar for us to kind of try and clear is, is evolvinghockey.com. They calculate their error a little bit differently. And I don't, and I'm not going to sit here that say one way is better or another, We'll maybe talk in a minute why we think that including minimums is is why we do that our way. Um, but so I calculate kind of their numbers roughly to give give a a fair picture to our projections versus their projections, and this is kind of an estimate because I mean they they I was only able to pull so much data, still their air to kind of put out there, but. Can look at we can look at it a couple ways. Um, if we take the their actual kind of cap hit for the uh, term that was signed, their air is pretty much sitting right in line with ours. There's we're we're talking like a thousand dollars difference in their favor. So if we were to kind of look at theirs and a similar light to how we project ours, so we're projecting one term, one cap hit they have a most likely kind of probability for a term and a, and a cap hit associated with that most likely term. So if you're kind of just doing a quick look at their contract projections, this is probably the number that's going to catch your eye first. So when we kind of take that number, they also have some different time periods, so I can't, I didn't, wasn't able to quite factor that in. So this is, this is a rough estimate their air um, is about four hundred thirty thousand um, compared to ours about three sixty two when I had pulled this data now three sixty three a little bit higher um, length comparison ours on average was 0.65 off theirs was 0.75 off so basically every one uh, two to three contracts there might be a year air on on both of our parts very, very similar there so so that's kind of where where we sit on kind of a fair playing field and then I think it's also important for us to pre present our contracts in the same method that they did their kind of write-up on so our air when we take out every minimum contract that was signed not necessarily what we projected, but what was actually signed. Our air is 532,000 with a length air of 0.87. They have presented in their write-up um, 544,000. So we're doing ever so slightly better. So we're we're right we're right there with um with kind of the gold standard in the industry and and that and I think that's something that we're going to continue to strive to push forward, um and so so we continue to mention that we kind of present our air with the minimums on and I think it's important to talk a little bit about why we kind of have that sentiment. Yeah. So. Trying to explain this, I, I'm going to try and keep it fairly simple and just say the 
contracts signed at the minimum are just as much part of the overall free agency market as a contract that is signed at $3 million. Now, when we project a minimum, sure, it can kind of be viewed as it's a little easier to just say, okay, this player is going to end up signing for the minimum. He's not very good uh, performance-wise, and it, that can maybe be seen as an easy way to bring the number down. At the same time, I think every contract basically starts at the minimum. That's the floor every player can make. And then we have to then decide how much better is player X than player Y. Um, and that's kind of how we come up with, well, if players can make a minimum of 775000 and we want to say that that is a let's call it a fourth liner, that's kind of our, our basis of now we need to build a contract for a second liner, a first line guy. Um, so to, I, I, I understand the sentiment of, well, if this guy's really bad, he might barely make the NHL. It's very easy to project that contract. I think excluding all of the minimums kind of eliminates a fairly sizable section of the market. Yeah, so we we oftentimes will <clears throat> project a minimum and they'll sign for a minimum. So great, zero error, great, great for us. But it's also just as common for us to have projected a player takes like their qualifying offer, which is... It's close to the, so a lot of them are very close to the league minimum, but they're not the league minimum. And then the player does sign for the minimum. So we're wrong. Yes, it, it's it's wrong in kind of our, like these, it's not much air, so it's bringing down our overall air, but we're still wrong. Like it still matters in the overall context of what we're predicting. And I think the other scenario we see a lot is, is what really is a minimum contract because players sometimes will sign a, like a two-year contract. This is very common to happen. A two-year contract where the minimum for kind of the subsequent, the second year of that contract's already set. They can't sign a contract that's going to be below that minimum. So this two-year contract is really at the minimum but it's the second year minimum. So again, we're a little bit off, even though we're kind of correct at the same point. And I also think just from a, if you're listening to this episode, you've ever viewed our contracts and you want to get a sense of where player X stands, you're still, you're still going to look them up regardless if they're, if we've presented a minimum contract or not, like, Maybe we're, we're enlightening uh, that, oh, this guy really doesn't have value. And you're thinking that this is a guy that I want on my team because I've seen him, I've studied him or whatever. Oh, th my team can actually get him very cheaply. So I think it's also important if we're going to present it publicly and out there, it's pro it, we should be factoring it in to kind of our overall air. And there are some that we project at the minimum or close to it that get significantly higher contracts and or vice versa, this year, Connor Brown, we projected 
like a $3 million contract, and he technically signed for the minimum with a lot of bonuses. But does he come out of the projections? Does he stay in? To me, he, he has to stay in. We were wrong. Could end up being right when all said and done, but we were wrong. And if we're going to say, okay, well, well, he really wasn't a minimum, so let's take him, let's leave him in our air, then we're just picking and choosing kind of who stays in. So I think just saying every contract that was signed by someone who played in the NHL last year goes in our air. And I think, and that's kind of how the way we look at it. Yeah. I think uh, another quick example of that um, again, this year was Cam Talbot. That was a contract we've kind of talked about um, outside of the podcast. Um, we had him projected at about 2.3 and he ended up, ended up signing for one year, 1 million. Um, but there were bonuses worked in there for him to significantly increase that number. And for him to get that, it was played 10 games. Um, that's something that is going to happen. He's going to do it. It's kind of a way for the team to push some of that, uh, salary to, uh, to next season, basically to count next year. It's a little murky of, do we, toss that one out of the air calculation should we keep it in um so i I think we kind of just ultimately decided here everything stays in because everything is impacting the market yeah and likewise do we do we or do we even adjust that cam tell bit like do we say assume he's going to hit that hit that bonus and put him at two uh one year two million then our our air is a lot looking a lot better. And then same with, uh, oh, you know, a Nick Foligno and Corey Perry in, in Chicago. Everyone knows the Blackhawks overpaid them. So do we take them out entirely? Do we, like, how do we reconcile that? So again, just leaving everyone in, not picking and choosing who we're putting in, taking out to calculate our air, I think I think's really important. And I think we also should mention before we get too far removed, kind of presenting in context here, our air also includes players that were bought out. So Blake Wheeler, Oliver Ekman Larson, Kyler Yamamoto, uh, he's a little bit of a unique situation, Matthew Shane, and Mike Riley. I think I got everyone without repeating at least all the big names there. So I don't I don't know if that helps hurts. I think ultimately it probably almost equal equals out where our air on Blake Wheeler is pretty far off, but our air on Matt Matthew Shane's pretty good and Mike Riley's pretty good. So when you when we have the scale of contracts that we do, I think we start to get to a point where unless they're clear differences another contract or two within a certain range is not going to change where our air is this year much yeah so i I think uh to specifically talk about that when when i had mentioned earlier uh zegris needs to sign tatar needs to sign unless we are way way off and i what i mean by that is so right now um as we record our air is uh just over 363,000 we would need to be millions off on these guys to see a significant change to that number 
So yeah, with with Zegers and Tatar basically being the the two, um, I'll call them sizable contracts left on our projections. Um, we're we're really not expecting a whole lot uh, to change with our air. So even though we do leave those kind of outliers in the Corey Perry's, the Nick Felinos taking the face value for Connor Brown and Cam Talbot. Um, I, I also think for, I think most people listening, most people observing would agree that it's not truly a picture of where our projections, where our accuracy is with those guys kind of in it. Like Talbot, everyone knows he's playing 10 games. So his contract is really one year, 2 million. So Nick Foligno, Corey Perry, everyone knows they were well overpaid. Connor Brown was a very unique situation. So if we were to exclude those three players in a just Talbot to a, a one-year, $2 million contract, which uh, bring which is more in line with what we had projected, that brings our kind of contract, our prediction error, mean absolute error, down approximately $30,000. So now instead of sitting in the mid 300,000s were closer to the low end of the 300,000s. And another big outlier we have in our data set, and this we can't exclude because we we missed. We missed. I'll tell you how much of a, it makes almost a $10,000 air this one player, and that's Cole Caulfield, who we had only projected a short-term contract for. So I think it's important here to kind of touch on, we do give ourselves a little bit of an out short versus long on RFAs. Yeah, so everyone's kind of heard the term bridge deal thrown around, and we've actually talked about it on previous episodes. Usually not a great idea. Um, but there, there's bridge deals, there's long-term deals. So we'll usually refer to them as short-term and long-term when we're doing our contract projections. Um, that said, for a lot of the, I'll say, higher-end or kind of mid-group uh, RFAs, we'll sometimes have two different contracts listed, a, a long-term and a short-term. It, it's kind of to make sure we have both situations covered. Um, a player we believe in a situation where he is a top young player, it, it would make a lot of sense to go long term. But sometimes cap situations can dictate a player getting a little bit shorter of a deal, a bridge deal. So some of those guys, we, we prefer to have the two contracts uh, just to make sure we have that short term and long term value represented. Um, that being said, uh, like you mentioned, Cole Caulfield, we only did short-term. Part of that decision at the time, I think, was based off of his uh, very recent injury history. Um, looking at it now, that was clearly an incorrect decision, a, a mistake on our part. We probably should have had a long-term deal put in there as well for him. Um, so, so we were... We were projecting two years at 3.4 million AAV. Uh, that was our only contract for Caulfield, and he ended up signing for the max term, eight years at 7.85 AAV. Um, so 
again, that's one we it's a huge outlier. There isn't any justification to even think about excluding it. That's just a miss on our part. Yeah, and I think that's we'll get we'll get into maybe some lessons learned, kind of where where we see things going forward. Um, couple more kind of just air numbers to throw out because we we kind of talked about RFAs, UFAs, evolving hockey breaks breaks out theirs as well into RFA versus UFA. So this year, this year, um, we were weaker in RFAs. Big things to our Cole Caulfield swing and miss there. Um, even even if we had put him in, I think we're still I think we still have a little bit of work to do with with RFAs with him with his air in. Um, we're we're sitting about four hundred forty four thousand on our RFA air, which is not great, and that's excluding all minimums. So this this is um, comparable to what Evolving Hockey's write up has, and I and I think for purposes of Fairness here, I think we sh- will just present them with the um, with the exclusion of the minimums. So we we were we were definitely a little weaker with the RFAs. We might have been propping ourselves up a little with the minimums in in that case. But we did quite well with unrestricted free agents, and I think I'm pleased with kind of the the difference between RFA versus UFA. I kind of like the fact that we're pretty consistently off by the same amount. So our unrestricted free agent air excluding minimum 601,000. Evolving Hockey had presented theirs as 750,000. Their RFA air for, uh, if you haven't read their write-up, 287,350. So our, we're, we're much closer to our t- kind of our average air without minimums, which is sitting right around 500,000. So I like that better because I like that if you're a user of these projections, you can kind of look at what we have presented there and think and pretty confidently think, okay, so they've got this player projected to sign for four and a half million based on how they've historically been wrong. Oh, we could look at 400 to 500. Four million to five million. That's kind of it's kind of a range there, and we we fall in that range for unrestricted and restricted at least for this year. So, kind of staying with this kind of range of air idea, I think now is a good time to kind of mention this as well. So, another another method that evolving hockey uses to kind of evaluate their uh, per, their model is is they create a scatter plot. And kind of find the um, the line of best fit and find how far away their points are basically f- uh, falling from that line, their R squared value, and we we kind of did the the same thing. And I and I think the the results this year are very interesting. So looking at our kind of apples to apples, our air from this year versus last year are actually pretty similar. They're, they're still in the mid kind of 300,000s. So we, we haven't really moved a whole lot there. But our kind of variance, our swings this year are a lot worse than they were last year. So last year, 
we basically had an R squared value of 0.9. So if you don't know, I don't like throwing that out without kind of explaining uh, kind of what that means in, in simpler terms. We were pretty close to each contract being plus or minus the same amount. Little, little bit of little bit of air here and there, but a lot of the contracts that were signed were probably plus or minus about three hundred fifty thousand dollars. There was much more consistency, in other words, of how far we were off. Yeah, the, um, this year our R squared value point eight four. So our ups and downs are being correct or close to correct was greater, but also our misses were greater. And I don't think that that's a big surprise when we step back and think about how this free agent market kind of shaped up in just the current marketplace situation. Yeah, so I, I think those... Contracts we mentioned before, the Felino, the Perry, and then that, that miss we had with Caulfield, really those three are some of the, well, I think they are our three biggest outliers. Um, and those are fairly big misses. Uh, and so in, in comparison to the previous year, we didn't really have misses that were that big, um, especially the Caulfield one. At the same time, like you mentioned, when we're accurate and we're kind of, I guess we'll call it, we're really hitting on the contract projection, this year we're a little more so hitting that contract projection. We're a little bit more accurate in that sense. Yeah, I think for every Folino Perry, that's that's probably a bad example. How about how about this example? Connor Clifton, Eric Johnson, we had a Jason Zucker and Tyler Bertuzzi where we were almost dead on with their with their cap hits, where the two defensemen that signed with the Sabres, we were were some of our biggest outliers in our in our kind of sample. So it's it really is we we had some that we were really close on, some that were quite far off on and I think this is a good kind of segue transition into what have we learned what do we get better what's the outlook for next year or is the outlook is this year was weird yeah so I, I think this year was definitely weird but that doesn't mean there aren't areas and, and ways we can improve this process um, this year being weird doesn't answer all of our questions and make an excuse for anywhere we might have missed a little bit. Um, I think, and you mentioned this earlier in this episode, there could be a little bit of opportunity as far as being aware of exactly how much there is in cap space that could possibly be spent. Um, at least what that amount is expected to be at the beginning of free agency. Like you mentioned earlier, our total projections, it was more than what was actually available. Um, so just from that point of view, we kind of knew there was going to be a squeeze on the contracts. Um, so I think there's a bit of debate between the both of us that we're going to have to have as far as like how much of an opportunity is there in, in using that. Um, 
but there is probably some value there to being more aware of, uh, of how much money can be spent. Um, one of the big things we've talked about, I think we've mentioned it on other podcast episodes, um, all of the contract data that we're using, how far back do we truly want to go? And we really want to ask that question because as time goes on, certain contracts are just going to be less relevant. Um, when we first started this, we'd been looking back to, uh, I believe it's the 2012-2013 season, which at this point is a decade ago. And that those deals aren't going to be um, as heavily referenced or relied upon when um, arguing for a contract um, as a deal, say, two or three years ago. Um, so I, I think that's probably an area we can really uh, kind of focus in on and maybe change how far back we're, we're looking. Think, I think there's going to be a level of push and pull here. So I think one thing we've actually done well the last couple of years under this flat cap is being more cognizant of the contracts that were kind of signed under the same circumstances and favoring those kind of in the final projection a little bit more. We might lean towards leaving some of those in, in the projection opposed to and then maybe taking some older ones out. So I think we have to toe a line now because... I a hundred percent am at the point where I don't even remember some of the players that, that were playing 10 years ago thinking, was this guy potentially a good comparison? Like just looking at, at outputs and like, Oh my gosh, I don't re remember that guy playing versus also recognizing that the kind of the salary cap rise 10, seven, years ago is more what we're going to see coming out of kind of the COVID repayment situation. So starting next year, basically. So there's kind of a push and pull here in that these last couple of years, especially short-term contracts, everyone knew that the cap was not going to go up for most of that contract. It's it's really how far back can we go? So I think I think a good kind of example here to throw out is like when Toronto signed Austin Matthews to the their original five year contract after his entry level had expired, they were expecting a kind of steady rise in the salary cap. So they were expecting to have space to work with with his big contract on the books. So that off season, twenty nineteen ish would make sense to potentially you like favor a little bit more now but it it but we're still talking about like still five almost five years ago at this point that's that's still a time frame where the game has evolved the kind of feeling on players and what skills traits teams are more willing to pay for has also changed yeah, I think if the entire COVID situation, how it impacted the league, if that hadn't happened and it was just a continual rise of the cap, it would be a little bit easier to just, as the years go on, start taking away some years from our sample. Um, because of that, 
uh, I'll call it the impact or the COVID impact on the NHL salary cap. Um, it, it does kind of present, like you said, a little bit of a push and pull situation of some of these contracts might actually be um, very comparable, um, both player-wise and just situationally. Others might not. Um, so it's going to be a little tough to really decide exactly how we want to proceed with that. So I, I also think it's really important for us to continue to kind of keep in mind, again, kind of sticking with this theme, the game has changed a lot in the past 10 years. Gone are the days where teams are favoring signing the biggest centers, the big bruising wingers. Like there, there was a reckoning that that teams learned that signing kind of power, big power forwards to seven year contracts. It was the year the that Milan Lucic got a seven year contract. Kyle Poso got a seven year contract, and both of those guys they're they're different players, but also played a more physical kind of grinding style of hockey and brought some skill to the table. Both those players did not; those contracts didn't age well at all. Um, Oposo kind of probably was able to provide a little more value towards the tail end, but he was probably thought of as the slightly less physical, grinding, bruising player. Andrew Ed also kind of falls in in that category as well. So teams learned their lesson pretty quickly and started to adjust. I mean, just a couple years after. Pat Maroon was a free agent who had put up good to better numbers than a lot of than those other guys that I just kind of mentioned, and he was having trouble finding a team. So maybe a little bit of an overcorrection there, but the difference in the league in kind of how the league views players and just the kind of smartness of the league in assessing how players are going to age through that contract is is changing dramatically. So kind of along the same lines with the league getting smarter, making maybe better decisions and just changing how they view situations is is restricted free agency. And we kind of mentioned that this was where we were weaker on. So I think this is where we need to take probably a little bit of a harder look at our process and learn some more lessons it's there might be a level of recency, but I think there's some other things as well that maybe we need to kind of factor in. Yeah, so this kind of, as far as for projecting a contract, generally a, an RFA signing a bridge deal, it, it's usually going to take them um, right back to RFA expiry status. Um, so w- once that bridge deal ends, in general, they are usually still an RFA. When an RFA signs a, let's say, a bigger contract and it takes them into uh, what we would, I guess, call UFA years, as we add additional years, the value of the contract is generally going to increase at that point of the player's career. I think, one, we need to make sure we're definitely aware of if we are projecting a player into those UFA years. Um, one, just being aware of that, and two, being aware of how many years are we saying the team is buying, how many of those UFA years. Yeah, and I think related to that, I, 
another place that we need that has kind of started to become used a little bit more. The kind of adjustment to the collective bargaining agreement kind of pulled this back a little bit, but kind of. And we are, we do try to be careful of this, but it's it's still a factor, and I think it does impact how much players get as a restricted free agent. Is that kind of last year? I'm gonna call it kind of a poison pill year. So this is this is the Timo Meyer situation this past offseason, where he was still a restricted free agent. So the San Jose Sharks could retain his um, his rights there if they wanted to, but they would have had to offer a qualifying offer of $10 million. And he would have probably taken that and then played that, played one year out, and then walked right to unrestricted free agency and had his choice of teams. Ultimately ended up traded to the Devils and signing a long-term extension. Alex DeBrinkett, another example of this. Um, so... Kachuk was another, and that's kind of how he was partially able to force his way out of Calgary. Um, so it's we're aware of it. It's generally when a player turns 26 that this comes into play. Again, the rules have changed a little bit, but we, we try to be aware, but I think that that's another, again, kind of building on where we can improve, where we need to pay more attention. I think that's probably one place, too. Yeah, I think especially it's really there's it's one thing to be aware um, that UFA years might start to come into play, but it's I think also making sure we are factoring in what that value is of the UFA year or of two more UFA, three more UFA years. Um, so yeah, I I think that's probably especially with our RFA uh, projections not being quite as strong, that, that's one of the key areas we can really uh, focus on in, in an effort to improve. And, and I think and I think the other, I mean, we've, we've talked about, but let's, let's explicitly say it. RFAs are getting paid more at a younger age now. Um, and so I think there's even more onus on us to be mindful of that and really really start looking critically at what years we're including, especially for restricted free agents. Yep, and I, I just to kind of tie this in, um, we had previously mentioned that certain contracts that are maybe signed a little more recent, so let's say the past three, four, five years, might capture that, uh, that fact of, Younger players, RFA guys, are just getting paid a little bit more early on in their careers. It's going to be captured by those more recent contracts than um, contracts signed, let's say, a decade ago. So I, I think that's kind of where both of these things can kind of pair together. It's where there's opportunities um, to really improve kind of in, in multiple areas with these RFAs. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. I think where the true shift really started to happen, I mean, Connor McDavid's generational talent, so it's not a surprise. But I think that's right around when him and Jack Eichel kind of got massive deals right out of the gate. That was, that was where the teams were saying, 
hey, we, we, we know we got to pay these guys early at this point. And it kind of feels like once that barrier was broken down, Eichel probably more so. His, I mean, he, he was really good when he was young with Buffalo, but he wasn't, I mean, he still isn't the player McDavid is. And he got a massive contract based on what he was projected to become. And that's kind of, I think, the key phrase for RFAs now is teams care about what they're projected to become, not what they've kind of the sample they've already put up. Yeah, I think uh, to throw out another example, a much more recent one. So one, I guess you could say, following in the footsteps of Jack Eichel, Jack Hughes. Um, when he signed his uh, long-term deal with the Devils, he was not the player that we saw this past year. There were moments of it where you could kind of see, like, it's likely he's going to become a better player. But that's kind of where the shift of the mindset is. It's what is this player going to become for us in these next however many years of this contract. Yeah, so I think I think really our kind of learning takeaway is if if the player's playing pretty consistently on a first, second line, they're probably getting a long-term deal. Gone are the days where where the bridge deal is really going to happen for those unless the teams really put themselves in a bad situation. I'm looking at you, Vancouver, with uh, Elias Pettersson previously. But realistically, teams are getting... If if players are showing flashes, they're getting paid. If players aren't living up to it, they're not. Like Lafreniere, Taco... Those those are two high high draft picks that just just have bridge deals, and I think it's the right move by the team. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the right move for multiple reasons. One, the performance, and two, you kind of mentioned certain situations could impact this. The Rangers cap situation um, was not great, and I, I think if we look at just this off season as an example of who they had to sign, the bigger names as far as a draft pedigree uh, were the two you mentioned, Lafreniere and Kako. But I think we would both agree that the most important player to really get signed was Keandre Miller. So I think the team's overall situation is a key factor to all of this. It's not necessarily a consistent shift across the board. There's still going to be some times where uh, bridge deals essentially are going to have to happen just because of the cap scenario. Yeah, and I I think we continue to kind of stick where we, we have been with the long-term, short-term breakout. But Lafreniere, if you look at our, our projections, we didn't have a long-term scenario. We, we it was it was obvious that he was not getting a long term scenario based on as as we just mentioned, team cap situation and his performance. We knew that. I mean, our miss, as we talked about earlier, Cole Caulfield, we thought based on team cap situation and player injury, he was going to just go short-term, so we stuck with just the short-term. So I think we are we're we learned from him that we need to be a little bit more kind of liberal, a little more generous in how we uh, break short versus long. 
But we also need to remember that guys like Lafreniere are still going to get a short-term deal. Like, we were not wrong. We were very close on him. And even Keandre Miller, we put a short-term and a long-term projection in. But we kind of talked offline, like, we know there's no way that this long-term deal is happening between cap situation, like, between team situation and then the player side as well. Those those numbers just aren't aren't really jiving for either side but we we stuck with putting both out and and I think that's what we'll continue to do I think I think for RFAs it's it's important to kind of see the the two situations but I also think it's important kind of a sidetrack when you're when we're looking at RFAs we have a two-year deal or two three-year deal as our short term then oftentimes we have a longer term deal, seven, eight, six, seven, eight years usually. You, if they were to sign somewhere in between, or you're trying to use our numbers to project in between, you, it's not necessarily a straight line. So to kind of give an example of that, let's say you're looking at a player that we project uh, three years on a short term deal or seven years on a long term deal. So in theory, the midpoint would be five. So let's say you're trying to figure out, well, what would he expect on a AAV for five years? It's not as cut and dry as finding the midpoint of the a the two AAVs. Um, the issue is each additional year added to a contract does not um, mean the same amount of AAV is added for each year. Each additional year on a contract is usually going to require a different increase in the AAV. So it's not adding one more million for each year as you go four, five, six years, you're not going to go four million, five million, six million. As you buy more years, the values are going to change of how much you're going up. And the second issue that comes into play there is those values being increased, even though they're different across the years, it's not the same for every player. So maybe player X going from year four to year five is going to be a one million increase but maybe player Y from year four to year five is going to be a one and a half million increase. That's going to be different because of a number of factors that include player performance, possibly team cap situation, uh, the position of the player. So there's a lot that goes into this that makes it not a cut and dry projection. You can't really just find the midpoint here. So, so as you were talking through that, I, it jogged my memory. I actually did a scenario for an agent. I gotta be very careful not to reveal too much here. But I, uh, I did a scenario for an agent for someone who was looking at anywhere from a short-term bridge contract as a restricted free agent to a longer-term contract. I approached it as those were as first we needed to figure out what kind of the market rate for those RFA years were, kind of figure out what that worked out to be on an annual basis. And that was one kind of player set. 
I used one player set, one list of comparable players to kind of do that. Then once he hit the age that he was going to become an unrestricted free agent, I had a different set of players that basically dictated what he would need to be paid as a unrestricted free agent. And then I kind of said, okay, well, what if we spread those unrestricted free agent years kind of equally the difference equally across the kind of contract and that's kind of how I arrived at at a kind of projection for this player kind of a little bit more of an accurate situation because I'm not I mean no offense to anyone listening but I was doing it probably on a little more important scale than trying to project for public to kind of see for fun so that's kind of how I've approached that situation in the past, and I think that's really has to be the approach. It's either you use comparable players who did the same situation, or you have to break the two situations up and figure out how to kind of combine them at the end. So I think another kind of, I think maybe a philosophical point here as we kind of wrap this episode up is what is our end goal for what we are predicting? Are we predicting what the market value is, what the player's actually going to sign for? And I guess the question is, are we concerned with what the cap hit's going to be or how much the player's actually going to make? Yeah. So I, I think, um, at first, when we first started doing this, we weren't even 100% sure ourselves, and we even go back and forth of what exactly are we trying to do when we project this number. I think that in the past couple of years and this year as well, we, we kind of lean towards looking to project a contract for each player that is a likely contract to be signed. So not necessarily a full value of a player, but what can this player expect based off of previous contracts that were signed by other players? Yeah. And I, I think it's, I think we've done the best we can to try to remove our own thoughts and feelings on a certain player and our projection. So Another player that's still unsigned that seems that we're not going to worry about being unsigned for purposes of these projections is Patrick Kane. But we we went back and forth many, many times on our, is our deal proper? Are we putting a proper deal out there for what we, like again, are we putting out what we expect to happen, which we're expecting probably a one-year, very near minimum deal potentially or are we presenting what other similar players in the past have signed for in the mark like in the marketplace and we tried to lean towards that second one because that's kind of the more unbiased what what's past data telling our prediction or driving our projection projection if you will so I think the other the question that we the other kind of philosophical question I threw out there is are we concerned with how far off our total contract is 
Or is our goal to kind of give a sense of people who are using these, how much the player is going to count against the cap? I, I think um, in a perfect world, we would nail a contract exactly, both the length and the cap hit. But if we were to really rank what is most important, it would be to get the cap hit perfect. For that reason of we really want to have or be able to provide an idea of how much player X is going to cost against the cap. Yeah, I I think we I think there's this a level of being of looking at total value mostly because sometimes that's really more what the agents and players care about is how much they're actually going to make over the life of the contract. And it's not uncommon to tack an extra year or two on for the team to lower the cap hit, but the player still gets their total kind of money. So it's 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 a trade-off. I, I think I agree that we tend to try to project what the cap hit's gonna be, but it it is a it's an interesting kind of maybe we should start evaluating in, in a, another manner as well, how much total value we're off because, again, that we might project $20 million over four years, so that's a $5 million cap hit. Maybe they agreed to $20 million over five for a $4 million cap hit, and now we're suddenly a million dollars off in our air, but actuality, we basically nailed the contract. So... It's it's a push and pull. Maybe it's a maybe it's a duality of kind of a of an air. I don't think we're going to necessarily add that this year, but maybe we'll keep it in mind, make a note of it for next year. Um, but yeah, that's kind of an overall sense of our kind of where where this year shook out from a, our projection model standpoint. Um, right now, I mean, I think we're we're going to be pretty close to where we were last year air wise. So not not thrilled we we wanted to push it forward a little bit more but i think this year being a unique situation is 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 what it is and then there's also going to be a question at some point is how how much more room do we really have to improve because we're sitting here as outsiders basically trying to project what is going to happen inside and and there's always going to be some level of differences there so um that's that's kind of the wrap up of our projection model for this year, and uh, we we're looking forward to continuing to come up with good ideas. If as players sign throughout the year, you have a player that you're interested what what their uh, projection should be, feel free to you know tweet us at AFP Analytics. Um, again, you can find both of our personal accounts there. We appreciate you subscribing, listening to this podcast uh, available on all major platforms. And with that, we'll talk to you next time.